All right. Well, welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. Our episode is really exciting uh, this time, and we're going to focus on neuropsychological testing for the neurologist. And neuropsychological testing can be something that can feel nebulous and complicated. Many of us have heard stories of testing that goes on for hours and hours. uh, And of course, we're not able or capable as neurologists of being able to do the full range of neuropsychological testing, but I think it is useful for us to understand how full cognitive testing works, so I'm excited about this episode. I'm delighted to be joined by Stephanie Towns, who's an assistant professor of clinical neurology in our department. Uh, She's a neuropsychologist. She's very interested in education, and she's going to review the role of the neuropsychologist, some of the tools that are used with a focus on what neurologists and neurology trainees need to know. Stephanie, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, can you take a moment to tell our listeners what neuropsychology is and also importantly, what it isn't? Absolutely. Um, So neuropsychology is the evaluation of behavioral evidence of brain dysfunction. So essentially, our job is to evaluate the functional piece of uh, brain functioning. So, you know, we have neuroimaging, we have symptom descriptions, we have patient report, we have medical history. um, And then what we do is bring in that sort of objective evaluation of what the brain is capable of doing when it comes to things like memory, focus, language, um, that types of thing. Uh, One of the the common misconceptions or common clarifications we usually have to make is that neuropsychologists are not MDs. We are are PhDs, so we do not prescribe medication. Um, Even though we are are trained as clinical psychologists initially, we go on to do quite a bit of specialized training. So most neuropsychologists are uh, quite a few years out from being able to provide any sort of competent psychological or psychiatric evaluation or treatment. Um, So we're really focused on the the cognitive functions. Would you be able to tell us about the range of cognitive assessment tools that we as clinicians can use? I know a lot of us are familiar with cognitive screening tools, but we may be less familiar with the full range of cognitive testing and then what goes into full neuropsychological assessment. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. So um, cognitive screening would be a brief measure of cognition that can be completed by a physician or another provider in a clinical setting to determine the presence of possible impairment. So cognitive screenings tend to be not very sensitive, right? So a a cognitive screening measure is not designed to pick up on sensitive uh, or not to be sensitive to small or mild cognitive changes. It's really meant to assess sort of at a very broad level um, how someone is functioning cognitively. Cognitive testing is what we actually do with the patients where we administer individual neuropsychological and cognitive measures. And when you're doing those, they should include individual, multiple individual tests among each domain. So a screening measure really isn't meant to tackle every single domain in depth, right? So asking someone to remember three words after five minutes does not accurately assess all of the capacities of memory, right? Whereas when we do cognitive testing, we try and assess lots of different aspects of that one domain. Um, And we always like to point out that neuropsychological evaluation is not so much the testing portion, um, but the pulling together of 
test results, behavioral observations, history, medical records, neuroimaging, interview. Um, and that's really what, where we are the most useful um, is that we spend a lot of time with the patient. We usually have a lot of time to speak to their family. We get a lot of behavioral observations that we always integrate. So you should never be making uh, any sort of decision or diagnosis based on a single test score. We should never be doing that and neither should our colleagues. So it really should be looked at holistically and that's kind of where we come in. I guess the equivalent for clinical neurologists is that we would never want to make a diagnosis of uh, an acute stroke purely on the basis of an upgoing toe. Uh, we take that in the context of other history and physical exam findings and other ancillary tests in order to make a decision. Um, changing speeds, can you tell us a little bit about some of the specific elements of cognitive screening tests and maybe some of the advantages and disadvantages of those elements and approaches? Absolutely. So the two primary cognitive screeners that um, your listeners are probably most familiar with would be the mini mental status exam and the Montreal Cognitive Assessment or the MOCA. Um, both have their pluses and minuses. Um, the, the MOCA definitely has more of an executive component that's lacking on the mini mental. The mini mental is a little bit more extensive. Um, and there are cutoffs for both in terms of what should be considered abnormal. Um, then another good one is the clock drawing test. That's one that um, is often utilized by physicians. Um, and again, the important thing to know about that is that there's lots of different ways of both administering it and scoring it. Um, so I'm sure your listeners may or may not be aware that the MOCA recently came out saying that they're going to require people to be trained in order to access the free versions of the MOCA because a lot of people aren't aware there is actually a standardized uh, instruction booklet and a standardized way of scoring the MOCA. Um, and, and if you think about it, there's only 30 points, right? So if you score it one way and the next resident who sees that patient scores it differently and you knock off two or three points solely based on scoring, it's going to look in the medical record as if that patient has had significant cognitive decline when in reality it's just non-standardized scoring. Um, so we really like to emphasize to people that they should be um, using this, the standardized, me standardized uh, measures and standardized uh, administration procedures. Um, and one of the other things I always like to point out is that there's very different norms and cutoffs, um, and you want to be very careful about how you're determining an abnormal result on a screening measure. Like we said, it's not particularly sensitive, but a lot of people can consider it to be very specific. So if you get a MOCA score of a 14, at first glance, one would say, oh, that's absolutely someone who has cognitive impairment. That absolutely happened. Um, but I actually had this happen to me um, not, not too long ago, I got a referral for a patient whose MOCA was about a, a 14 or 15. And I thought, why are they even sending me this person? Clearly, clearly they're so cognitively impaired. And this was not a Yale resident. I want to point that out. Um, but it turns out that the person was not primary English speaking. And so actually cognitively, he was in much better shape than his MOCA looked, but he had been told that he had dementia by this primary care doctor who just hadn't really factored in, even though he was, he was relatively conversant in English, that it really wasn't appropriate to be giving him um, a test that's normed and designed for people who are born and raised in the United States. You know, one of the things that I always encourage our students and residents to do when they're 
uh, administering one of these uh, tests is to really pay attention to what is happening during the administration. And the score is one thing, uh, and that can produce useful information, as you've discussed. But it may be even more useful to actually observe the person engage with each of the test items, uh, because this can provide you valuable insights, not only about their cognitive function, but about other things that may impair their ability to engage fully with the test. For example, somebody who's particularly anxious or tearful uh, during the test may not be engaging well. Somebody who clearly has some issues with knowledge or educational attainment or cultural barriers, which may impair their ability to engage with the test. Those things are not possible by looking at the score on its own. I think of this very similarly to the way I think about the NIH stroke scale, which we've talked about in prior podcasts. And this scale has been developed and it has its purposes and the numbers are important to give you a broad sense of the severity of certain types of strokes, but it really doesn't give you the whole picture. So engaging with the test items can really provide valuable insights. And I think administering these tests uh, oneself as a trainee is, is extremely important and such a useful educational experience. No, absolutely. Those behavioral observations are huge. Even just thinking about, let's say you administer the clock drawing test and you might have two people who come out with scores of six, but if one person's score of six is because their numbers are all scrunched over to one side of the circle or they couldn't figure out how to draw the numbers correctly, and one person was able to draw the clock just fine, but couldn't indicate the correct time, those are two totally different cognitive issues, right? So that's, that same score can mean two totally different things based on behavioral observation. Tell us when we should be referring somebody for neuropsychological evaluation. It's a great question. Um, so neuropsychological evaluation is really helpful when cognitive deficits are suspected, but either the nature or extent of them is unclear. Um, so we really offer a lot of clarification in terms of level of cognitive functioning. Um, sometimes we're also useful when we know there are cognitive deficits, but exactly what they are is helpful. Um, so for example, in rehab situations, you know, we know someone has deficits after their stroke. We know someone has deficits after a severe brain injury, but figuring out exactly what those deficits are helps the rehab team target um, their interventions. Certainly one of the most useful things neuropsych evaluations do is inform diagnosis. So particularly in the area of dementia diagnosis, um, each dementia has its own sort of typical cognitive profile that really helps us point physicians in a direction if they're, they're not quite sure what they're dealing with. Um, the other thing that we can do is detect subtle cognitive deficits. So for example, you know, a lot of the time, this is what we're doing in terms of surgical evaluations, pre-surgical evaluations. Most of our pre-surgical candidates are relatively cognitively healthy, but we want to detect even the most subtle deficit before, so that the, the surgical team can make an informed decision. Um, and then of course, anytime there's a complex neurological condition or maybe just a neurological condition that's intermingled with other issues and it's helpful, we can sort of help parse that, parse that out. For example, um, you know, a lot of MS patients have such chronic fatigue and pain and other things that interfere with their daily functioning. Um, they can feel like they're having their, their cognitive functions are really impaired and we can be the people who parse out kind of, oh, you know what, cognitively you're actually capable of functioning pretty well if you're well rested, not distracted, not in pain. Um, 
So that's kind of the, the broad picture of where we can be helpful. What are some referrals for which neuropsychological testing is less helpful? Yeah. Um, so certainly any time that cognitive deficits are, are very global or very severe. Um, and we still do this sometimes, right? So occasionally I'll get a referral for someone who very clearly has an advanced dementia, but the family needs specific documentation and the physician wants to have formal testing. But a lot of the time, I mean, those, those patients can't really engage in our testing, right? So our testing tends to be pretty demanding. Um, you know, we are testing sort of higher level cognitive functions. So people who are so impaired that they can't really respond to you or they're so confused that they can't really follow their own train of thought, things like that, um, we're not going to be as helpful. Also, if somebody's globally cognitively impaired, we're not going to be very useful because we're just going to say, yep, everything's impaired, um, which often you guys already know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're helpful in sort of that detecting patterns and subtleties and, and what's okay and what's not. Um, you know, other times where you may not need us is when somebody who has really mild uh, functional complaints um, or a really unremarkable medical history, their screening is intact. Um, you know, this happens quite a bit with our older patients where, you know, an 85 year old who's fully functioning and doing really well and sometimes still working will come in, they're fine on the mocha, but the, the you know, their, their husband or wife says, well, you know, he just doesn't seem to remember things like he used to. Odds are that's normal aging and they may not need um, a full neuropsychological evaluation. Although again, we're good at detecting subtle deficits. Um, you know, sometimes we'll say to people, you know, if, if the person is 95 and is clearly largely intact, do we need to detect, detect subtle deficits at that point? Um, you know, what's helpful to the patient? What purpose is the evaluation serving? Um, and then of course, anytime someone is in an acute uh, crisis, either psychiatric or medical, they're going to have cognitive deficits, right? So we usually recommend that people not come in when they're in some sort of acute psychiatric state is normally the, the reason that we'll say, hey, let's get you psychiatrically stabilized because it's going to be really hard to parse out what, um, what is resulting from psychiatric, immediate psychiatric concerns. Um, the other thing that I will mention is also, and, and this comes up more than you would think, people who are um, intoxicated or consistently like daily substance users, it's really hard for us to parse out the difference between some, what the difference between sort of cognitive deficits associated with um, acute substance use. So if somebody is, um, comes to their appointment drunk or high, um, or who is using significant amounts of or prescribed medication, sometimes that can be really hard for us to parse out. That's really terrific. I think I'd like to move to asking you a bit more about your approach to overall cognitive function and how you approach uh, your analysis or your evaluation of somebody's cognitive function. I think uh, our bias as neurologists is really to focus very heavily on memory in our cognitive assessments, you know, orientation, uh, three-word recall or five-word recall. And of course, that assesses one element of cognitive function, but really doesn't get at the root of other functions very well. So I would love to hear your overall approach to help us to apply a framework to cognitive assessment. Absolutely. So in a, in a broad sense, we're usually paying attention to about five areas of cognitive function, right? So there is memory. There's also language, uh, visuospatial, 
functioning, um, attention and executive functioning, and we do include motor functioning usually. Um, and again, in a very gross way, that's much less sophisticated than the way that neurology assesses motor functioning. Um, so those are sort of our broad areas, but obviously within those, there are um, a number of different things. So within executive function, you might consider processing speed, attention, working memory, problem solving, abstract thinking, planning, um, you know, within language, there's expressive language, receptive language. Um, and of course, we're always trying to evaluate um, sort of the base layer of, of cognitive function, which is, is the person uh, awake? Are they attending? Are they able to hear me? Are they able to see me? Are they able to respond to me? Um, which, you know, comes up more often than you would think that sometimes really what we're seeing is a, you know, a vision issue or a, a hearing issue. Um, so we do try and always think about sort of the, the underlying capacities that somebody needs to have intact before they can correctly perform one of our tasks. You know, one of the things we teach our residents is that if you do not assess attention, arousal and attention, uh, then really all bets are off with other aspects of cognitive evaluation. And uh, we talk about the circuits that are responsible for arousal, the ascending reticular activating system, including the brainstem reticular nuclei, the bilateral thalami, and the, and the bilateral cortical projections, and diffuse problems or focal problems in, in multiple parts of that chain can lead to problems with arousal, and then dysfunction of frontal subcortical systems can lead to problems with attention. So it all really starts with that. So walk me through the other elements of cognitive evaluation and, and how you test them. Right. Um, so, you know, one of the, the most common ways is to give someone a series of digits or words and ask them to repeat them back, right? And that's exactly what you're doing on the MOCA or the mini mental where you'll give someone some, some letters or words um, and ask them to repeat them back. You also have on um, the MOCA where you're, you're, you're asking the person as you're saying letters, they have to indicate when they hear a certain letter. Um, and what we do to test sustained attention is we do something very similar to that, but over a period of about 20 minutes to half an hour. So we'll actually have someone sit in front of a computer um, and these are called continuous performance tests. And someone will actually sit in front of a computer and they're told to respond to a particular stimuli when it comes on the screen. Different stimuli will pop up and they'll have to stay focused enough to notice when it's coming. Um, and then of course the computer knows to, to do it with different patterns and different lag times and will let us know if the person kind of, you know, is, is this person able to really hang in there for the first 10 minutes, but then the second 10 minutes really loses it? Are they able to pay attention, but they make too many commission errors where they're just hitting they're just saying yes to everything. Um, so that's kind of generally how we measure sustained attention. Can you speak a bit about memory evaluation? Uh, I think we spend a lot of time with verbal memory. So, you know, a list learning task is typically focused on verbal memory. And that presumably has some uh, anatomical correlates in the mesial temporal structures, especially the dominant language, dominant mesial temporal structures. We do less of a good job of assessing dysfunction in nonverbal memory and in other subtypes of non-declarative memory. So I would love to hear your approach or thoughts about memory testing and, and just the complexities around that. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have sort of, it's very interesting because memory, to your point, is such a complicated um, system or, or domain of functioning. And it also involves, there's different types of memory that involve different brain structures. And the referral question is really different, right? So in, um, in the case of epilepsy, the, the concern about, you know, are those temporal lobe structures working and on one side versus the other, it's really, really important to localize to those things when we're considering epilepsy patients. Um, and it's a little bit different when you're looking at different other types of patients where the anatomy doesn't have to be as specific and you're more concerned with functional issues. Um, so yeah, so memory, we assess sort of two broad categories, as you mentioned, there's verbal and visual. Um, now, of course, there are lots of other types of memory that I'm not going to go into today, like implicit memory and, uh, you know, that is, that is a whole other podcast and you could do a whole, whole podcast just on memory functions. Um, but for our purposes, generally, we're looking at sort of that more declarative memory and we're looking at within visual and verbal. Um, and then normally we, we test that by breaking it down into a couple of different things. So we usually give more than one memory test in each domain. Um, the traditional mechanisms for testing verbal memory include usually list learning tasks of some kind, which are very similar to what you would do on a mini mental, but longer. So we give them longer lists of words. Uh, we give them longer delays. We usually have them wait, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and the tests usually vary uh, in terms of how many times, but usually most people on a list learning task get multiple trials to see how well they can learn. Uh, one really important thing to keep in mind is that if you can't learn something, you can't remember it. And so one big part of our assessment of memory is frequently to figure out if the person is encoding, but not retaining, or are they not encoding and therefore we can't really assess their memory as we would think of it. Um, and then usually in addition to a list learning task, there's a story learning task. And that gives us really good information in terms of again, that encoding process, right? So somebody who can learn the story but can't learn the list of words, that actually might mean they are having more of an executive problem. So if we organize information for them into a meaningful format like a story, they can learn it. If we give them a list of words that need to be categorized in order to efficiently remember them, they can't do that on their own. So that gives us some information about, is this actually memory or is this executive? Um, when, when it comes to visual memory, it is much harder to measure um, and doesn't also localize as nicely. So, you know, generally we can be pretty confident that somebody who has a problem on like a California verbal learning test, which is a, a visual or a verbal learning test um, and a memory test. And if they have, you know, trouble on that with recall, they have trouble on the story recall, I'm going to call it left temporal, probably an issue. Um, in terms of visual memory, we don't have as sensitive measures for that. And one of the other issues that our visual memory tests have is that they almost all re require someone to reproduce a figure, which requires motor function. Um, so normally what it is, is we show someone a figure, either a really complex figure, um, or we'll show them simple figures for brief periods of time and then take them away. And then we'll ask them to reproduce the figures. Once they've reproduced them, then we'll wait 20 or 30 minutes, ask them to reproduce them again then we'll ask them to recognize. So most memory tasks have an initial learning trial where you try and get the person to encode the information, a recall trial, which you ask the person to spontaneously retrieve the information after usually about 20 minutes or so, um, and then a recognition trial in which you present someone with options and ask them, you know, usually it's a yes or no, was this there? Did you see this? Did you hear this word? 
Um, I will give a plug for Dr. Brown, who is a, the division chief at Yale, and he actually has created a computerized dot location test that does not have any sort of motor requirement um, in an attempt to address some of those, those limitations. Um, but generally, that's usually how we're assessing uh, a visual memory is that we're showing someone a picture for some period of time and then asking them to reproduce it. So at the risk of oversimplifying things, and of course, taking into account uh, that you're excluding the possibility that the patient has a language or motor problem, uh, that overall uh, verbal memory will be supported by mesial temporal structures in the dominant, usually left hemisphere, and nonverbal or visual memory will typically be supported by uh, mesial temporal structures in the non-dominant, uh, in the right hemisphere. Um, I was also taught as a resident that there are four basic steps in the process of uh, remembering uh, in, in declarative memory, and those include registration, which is supported by attention and concentration, encoding, which is supported by mesial temporal structures, and that's sort of putting that uh, memory into your short-term memory banks, uh, retrieval, which can happen both with uh, immediate and delayed uh, process, and uh, that requires mesial temporal circuits, sometimes parietal and frontal circuits as well. And then the long-term process of consolidation, which I think is much harder to assess, certainly at the bedside, and maybe even hard to assess during uh, a, a longer neuropsychological testing because of uh, the fact that consolidation occurs over days or, or weeks or even longer. So we have most studies say that if somebody can't recall or retrieve something after 20, 30 minutes, they're it's gone. Um, so generally, yeah. And, and one thing to keep in mind, too, is that um, it would be it's very unusual for someone to lose any sort of long term memory. So if if you're seeing someone who has a neurologically based memory problem, they're gonna say, I can't remember from day to day. I can't remember something that happened a couple of days ago or even a few minutes ago. They're really not gonna say, you know, all of a sudden I can't remember my wedding or I can't remember, you know, my something that I, you know, my, my bar mitzvah or, or something that was really heavily encoded previously. Anytime someone's describing something like that to you, it's probably not neurologically based. Um, and you all have experienced this, right? When you see a patient who has Alzheimer's, they can't go from minute to minute, but they can tell you about their childhood or, or long-term memories. Would you say that's because the long-term memories are just so broadly encoded, uh, that they're so broadly distributed throughout the brain networks from years of consolidation? Uh, and, and as such, you know, if you take out any node in that network, uh, there are still many other nodes to support uh, these longer memories. Exactly. And if you think about, you know, as you were talking about those mesial temporal structures, if they're doing the consolidation and the encoding and they malfunction, the things that are already in, they're going to stay in, right? It's really the process of creating the memories um, and getting them in there securely that, that is malfunctioning. That's terrific. Can we talk a bit about language? Uh, at the bedside, we're pretty good at a basic language uh, testing, uh, which we do uh, looking at the six elements of language, fluency, naming, comprehension, repetition, reading, and writing. Um, but what are some ways that neuropsychologists assess language function? Yeah. Um, so 
it's still very broadly pretty much the same, except just more extensive. So in a, in a general neuropsychological evaluation where we don't suspect there are major memory problems, we'll probably do a comprehension screening um, where we ask grammatically complex or unusual questions, but that are easy to answer, right? Um, we'll usually do a screen for that. We'll usually evaluate uh, both phonemic or letter fluency and semantic fluency, and then we'll give a naming test. And generally that's what we'll do. Um, because when we're, de again, depending on what you're trying to assess for. So, you know, there's a particular language profile associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and there's a particular language profile associated with FTD, right? So when I, that, that's, that's sort of what I'm looking for if I'm evaluating an older person. Um, as soon as there's any suspicion of any sort of a phasic issue or a, a, a primary language deficit, then we actually have, um, a number of things there's you know probably the most popular is the boston diagnostic aphasia exam and that lets you go through language in a very systematic way um so let's say i give the 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 complex comprehension and the person can't do it okay so then i'm going to move on to well now i want to have you read i'm going to have you read complex sentences and see if you can comprehend those better than my spoken language. I'm going to break, if you can't do that, I'm going to break it down into words and at what level is the process breaking down. Um, and then there's a number of other things like, you know, we will have people repeat automatized sequences. Can they give me all the days of the week and the months of the year? Um, and sort of to parse out that receptive versus expressive. And then as I'm sure you've experienced, where in terms of complexity has that broken down? So someone who can't comprehend complex sentences might still be able to comprehend single words or short phrases. Um, somebody who can't, uh, you know, write out certain things might be able to express themselves verbally or vice versa. Um, so that's when we really, we really parse into uh, all the different types of language. And just for a brief review of the anatomy of language, the basic anatomy of language, uh, this typically for most people, is in one hemisphere, the hemisphere that we label as dominant for language. The expressive language area, Broca's area, is in the uh, dominant inferior frontal gyrus, uh, so in the frontal lobe. Uh, the receptive area is in the dominant superior temporal gyrus uh, in Wernicke's area. The connection between the two of them is the arcuate fasciculus, in general, fluent aphasias localize more posteriorly, more to the region in and around Wernicke's area. And uh, non-fluent aphasias, so aphasias with a dramatic decrease in language production, tend to localize to uh, Broca's area, uh, the anterior portion of the, uh, of the dominant hemisphere. Uh, you alluded briefly to the patterns of language dysfunction that you see with some neurodegenerative disorders. Can you elaborate on those? Absolutely. And it, actually, if you, um, you just described the anatomy of it beautifully, right? So uh, those more semantic language tasks. So if you think about it as like word knowledge, um, I need to know in order to name, let's say, a, a mug, I need to know what the mug is, identify it, and come up with the word mug, right? Um, in order to, if I say, tell me all the, the animals you can think of, I need to be able to 
identify and categorize, right? So, oh, those are, okay, animals. I know what animals are and I need that word knowledge. And that is that more sort of like temporal process. Um, the letter fluencies are much more about, um, uh, it's, it's much more frontal. It's much more that expressive, quick, it's sound based, it's phonemic based rather than, you know, I can, I can say the word fasciculus without knowing what a fasciculus is or what it means. Right. So, um, so that's sort of how we parse that out. We found actually pretty, pretty, it's a pretty robust finding that somebody who has a big split in their fluencies, if they have a low category fluency, which is that animal naming, but they have a, a pretty high letter fluency, that's usually indicative of Alzheimer's disease um, or some sort of, you know, left temporal issue. Um, and we'll frequently also see there the naming will be lower. Um, whereas we found in people who have like a more frontal issue like FTD, their phonemic fluency is usually significantly lower than their uh, category fluency. That was awesome. So let's move on to executive functioning. And uh, executive functioning is supported by the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the DLPFC. Uh, and uh, I was taught a mnemonic in residency around executive functioning, which was SOAP, S-O-A-P. So executive functioning can be further broken down into sequencing, organization, abstraction and planning. I'm sure that's an oversimplification, but it does help me to come up with some bedside maneuvers that I might use to test somebody's executive functioning. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you evaluate executive functioning. Absolutely. So you're right. Executive functioning is very complex and multifaceted and you can have intact, you know, you can have intact abstract thinking without having good problem solving. So it, it can get very tricky. Um, so, you know, some things to do at the bedside are really any sort of switching task is going to be executive, right? So asking someone to quickly switch from doing one thing to another, um, because, you know, a big part of executive functioning is that sort of behavioral control. Um, and if you, and being able to sort of in, inhibit a, an automatic response. So any sort of switching task, which is asking someone to say numbers and letters, you know, say one A, two B, three C, that type of thing. Um, asking somebody to do alternating motor movements even. So, hey, can you do this and then follow this sequence um, of motor movements? You can ask someone to, uh, inhibit an automatic response. So um, one way that we do it is we show someone a list of, of colors, right? So I'm going to give you a list of, of red, green, blue, and the word is going to be printed in a different color, right? So your brain, uh, just in, in our culture, we are trained to read words. So what ends up happening is if I say, I want you to tell me the color, even though it's different than the word that's printed, you have to inhibit reading the word and say the color. Um, so that's a really common way to get that sort of inhibitory response. But even things like, um, again, those switching tasks where you have to ask someone, if you have someone doing something consistently, and you can do this with motor movements, you can do this with drawings. So if, you do, if you've ever seen the ramparts where you ask someone to draw a repeated sequence, and then ask them to stop and draw a new one, you might see them perseverate and continue to draw the old one because they can't, can't make the switch. They can't stop and start a new thing. Um, 
I always thought that clock drawing played a role in executive functioning uh, and obviously has different functions, but may be important in the evaluation. It definitely does. Um, so clock drawing really is that sort of, um, it's, yeah. So normally when you see someone on clock drawing that has, if it is an executive functioning issue, so there are th things like planning, right? You have to be able to draw the, the picture correctly. You have to plan out getting it to fit on the page. You have to accurately space all the numbers and plan out where they should go. Um, you know, a really advanced clock drawer will know to put the 12, the six, the three and the nine in first and then draw the other numbers. Um, but usually it's the setting of the time. Um, particularly that 10 past 11 requires you to kind of abstract. Okay, so I'm not doing, you'll notice the people who are really concrete will do 10 and they'll point the hands to 10 and 11 because they can't, they can't do that abstraction. Another one we use a lot at the bedside for abstraction is similarities. Uh, and, uh, and again, the answer itself uh, can, uh, there's sort of a range of correct answers. So if you ask somebody to tell you what's similar between a banana and an orange, if they say they're both, they both have peels, I kind of think that maybe is a little bit more concrete than saying they both have fruit. But then you explain the rules and you say, you know, we're looking more for the concept, you know, that they're both fruit. And then you go on to another one and they say, you know, they, uh, you, you give them watch and ruler. And if they say, you know, they both have numbers, well, yes, that's true, but we were thinking they both measure something. Uh, so these give me valuable insights into somebody's ability to abstract. Uh, but I would love to hear your perspective on, on what you do to sort out abstraction. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we actually have a very similar task that's much longer where we make it progressively harder. So you're right, an abstraction task could be word similarities or um, asking someone to, if you've ever seen the DRS, the dementia rating scale, somebody will see figures and they'll have to figure out which are the most similar, even when they're not identical. Um, so it's about sort of identifying patterns and generalizing rules. So absolutely. So if somebody says, so if I start with how are two and seven alike? And sometimes we'll get people like, well, are they prime numbers? Are they, they're less than 10? And I'll go, no, 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 they're just numbers. They're just numbers. So we teach them the rules, right? And then I say, okay, so how are a horse and a tiger alike? And they say, oh, well, they have four legs. Okay, that's a little concrete. Um, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for animals. Um, and when we do it, we actually get to the point where we ask them how opposites are. So how are always and never alike? And they have to sort of, oh, they're extremes of time, you know, and, and really abstract out there. Um, but yeah, anything that's anything generally that's a physical characteristic is probably going to be too concrete. So what are some of the other tools that you use as a neuropsychologist uh, to evaluate executive functioning and how do they work? Absolutely. So you'll see the trails B, which you see on the MOCA. We do a longer version of that. And that can also be administered orally. We have a, a way to, to score that orally. Um, the Stroop color word task you'll see as well. Um, which is what I described where somebody's asked to read words, name colors, and then inhibit their response and name the, the color that's not the word. Um, and that I really has a really nice piece to it because we can, because we do the simpler trials and time them, same with trails. When we do trails, we'll do a simple version of it first where they just connect numbers as fast as they can. And what that does is it lets us account for processing speed. So if somebody just has really slow processing speed, that lets us know that uh, if they're low on across the board on all those things, it might be more of a speed issue than an actual executive or switching issue. 
Um, we also usually do different abstraction or abstract thinking tasks. So we have a word similarities task. We have um, sorting tasks where people have to, you know, they get um, cards and have to put them into categories. We have visual abstraction tasks where they actually have to look at a, pat a visual pattern and figure out which option goes in to complete the pattern. Um, of course, the Wisconsin card sorting test is, or any, any of the, there are a couple of problem solving tests. So tower tests where somebody has to puzzle through how to construct the tower in the right order. Um, Wisconsin card sorting test, which we ask them to, to problem solve. They have to generate solutions and we won't tell them how to go about doing that. So they have to generate solutions without any guidance. And then when they get feedback, they have to revise and learn a new rule. Um, so that's a great one. And we even get executive information from tasks that we would classify in other domains, right? So we talked about how letter fluency, you'll see some neuropsychologists put letter fluency in that executive functioning because um, fluency in general tends to be a more sort of frontal um, you know, we will, you'll see visual fluency tasks where someone has to draw different designs. Um, you'll see things. So like the Ray complex figure, which you may be familiar with, um, is a, is a copying task, right? It's a visual task, but it does require quite a bit of organization and planning. Um, so we also piece out that information from other places. So we've spent a lot of time in the, in the front parts of the brain, in the frontal lobes, in the temporal lobes. Um, and now I'd like to make the transition to talking about the parietal and occipital lobes and to, to visual and visuospatial and sensory functioning. And there are several tests we do at the bedside, uh, including visual fields, uh, sensory examination, uh, testing for uh, simultagnosia or uh, uh, visual extinction, uh, testing for praxis and other uh, types of visual spatial functioning. But what are some of the tests that you do as a neuropsychologist uh, to evaluate uh, parietal and occipital function and visual spatial functioning? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we have the copying tasks. So somebody gets presented with a complex figure like the Ray complex figure and we ask them to copy it. And that gives us a lot of information about not just their visual perception, but can they appreciate the forest for the trees, right? And we actually do know that, you know, gestalt kind of localizes a little bit to one side or lateralizes a little bit to one side, whereas the, the trees or the details lateralize a little bit to the other. And, um, you know, we, so that gives us a sense of if somebody can accurately reproduce details, but can't put them correctly in relationship to each other, that gives us a lot of really good information. We also have just sort of basic visual perception tasks, which normally involve looking at lines oriented in different ways and they have to identify um, which lines are matching and are oriented in the same way. Um, and then of course we have other construction tasks where we ask people, you're probably most familiar with the block design where somebody has to look at a design on a page and reproduce it in 3D. Um, and what will be really interesting is you'll see somebody who can absolutely do the 3D version of that. And if they can move the blocks around and try different things, they can puzzle through it. But when you ask them to do mental manipulation of visual figures where they have to actually rotate um, or move things around mentally, they'll have a really hard time. So for those, we sometimes give people, um, you know, they'll get a, a complete picture and then they'll get pieces of it and they have to figure out which pieces go together to make that picture. There's also a test called the Hooper Visual Organization Test, which I just love because it is so quick 
and so easy, but it gives you a ton of information. And that's literally just, it's, it's little pictures that are basically cut up and it's like you cut a bunny into three pieces and the person has to, and you rotate them and the person has to look at it, mentally manipulate all of that visual information and go, oh, that's a bunny. Um, so those are, those are probably the biggest visuospatial tasks that we do. That's really great. Uh, those are really helpful insights into some of the approaches that you could take to visual spatial functioning. Let's transition to motor function. This is certainly something uh, we do a lot at the bedside, but what are some of the approaches you take to motor function as a neuropsychologist? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting is um, sensory and motor testing used to be huge parts of what we did. Um, as neuropsychologists, when neuropsychology was sort of founded, it was founded as a localizing and lateralizing operation because we didn't have imaging. Um, now, those have become much less significant in terms of our, our job. So, you know, I, I am trained to do the single double sim simultaneous stimulation, but generally I find that my neurologists are really well trained and they do that. Uh, same for, for growth, most motor functions. Normally, if we're assessing motor function, um, we're going to do either a, we're looking for, for lateralization. So is somebody significantly weaker on one side versus the other? So we have a grooved pegboard test where the person gets teeny tiny pegs and they have to manipulate them correctly and put them into um, a hole in a particular way. And we time them on that. We have a finger tapping test where somebody has to tap a, um, a counter as fast as they can with their index finger. We'll also sometimes assess grip strength. So we actually have dynamometers that you, you hold on to and, and assess whether there's a difference in grip strength. Um, and, you know, really we're not often doing now, we're not doing the more um, nuanced motor functioning tasks. Well, this was just absolutely terrific. I think it was really great to hear about how you approach cognition and the ways that can complement our bedside examination and the ways in which we can understand how neuropsychologists can help uh, with our patients' care. So I'm just so grateful for you joining us uh, with this and, and thanks for taking the time to explain what uh, uh, you do and how you do it. Thank you so much for having me.